the only way I was seeing it processed or the only way it felt appropriate to process was online and to sort of live tweet this grief and you know prove to people that it was upsetting um to me as a black person who has consistently written about race and racism but even if I hadn't been a black person that writes about race or racism lives it like you know this isn't black people's by any mean entry point to this conversation Hello and welcome to Girls With Gold. My name is Neve Marr. Thank you, as always, for subscribing and listening to this week's episode. I am absolutely thrilled to introduce my guest this week. Her name is Yami Adegoke. She is a journalist and co-author of the book Slay In Your Lane. She's from the UK. There is a new book that's coming out in the autumn called Loud Black Girls as well. So we, we speak a little bit about the books that she's written, but in general, I've been a fan of Yami's work for years. I was sent Slay in Your Lane probably about two years ago now at this point. I read it then. In the last few weeks, I've reread it. And she wrote a piece that went out in British Vogue on the 2nd of June. It was a really powerful piece about what's happening at the moment with the Black Lives Matter movement, but also the social media aspect to it and the work that people are doing online as opposed to offline and the impact that that can have. So I reached out to Yami and I was so thrilled that she responded and we had a great conversation earlier on in the week. So take a listen. My name is Yomi Adegoke and I'm a journalist and co-author of the book Slain Your Lane. Fangirling! <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I love it. Um, I want to talk about the book because I know you've got a new book coming out as well a little bit later on. But first, Yomi, um, the piece that you wrote for British Vogue there um, kind of about a week and a half ago or so, it was so powerful. And I think it really spoke to so many different people about what's going on at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the headline of it is we need to rethink our picks or it didn't happen approach to activism and what I found really interesting was that in the very first kind of paragraph you spoke about how when you saw the George Floyd footage you felt exhausted more so than shocked straight away and I suppose I kind of want to start by asking how you're feeling now you know after a little bit of time has passed since that piece went live yeah god the back the God, I was about to call it backlash because I think I'm so I was so expectant of it being backlash that like um I've really kind of programmed my brain to think that it would have been but the response was just so overwhelming and overwhelmingly positive like I don't think I've ever had such a well-received article so that was really surprising and I think that might have been because um it was something a lot of people were feeling but didn't necessarily know how to articulate not that I really felt like I knew how to either but um I just I didn't even write it because I was commissioned to write it I wrote it because um when you know things really started to pick up in terms of the conversation around police brutality um as you kind of you know alluded to already I felt like I you know have I imagine and you know that many of the black people I've spoken to have said they felt um exhausted I felt like this this really kind of deep-seated grief that I feel almost hadn't left because only a couple of days before that you know there had been or maybe perhaps it was even around this like the same I'm not sure that what the timeline was but you know we as a community were discussing and you know 
mourning the death of Breonna Taylor. And then there was Ahmad Arbery, who was murdered in February. Um, and then there's Tony McDade, who was um, shot as well by police, I think in Florida. And in the UK, there'd been Betty Majinga, there'd been Trevor Bell, both killed whilst they were working, um, you know, spat at. We still haven't had the information about whether that was, you know, a racially motivated attack or anything. So it just felt, I don't know, it it felt very overwhelming, but not necessarily shocking because this is honestly something that, you know, we see in the news cycles all the time and we as a community react to and we as a community are pained by. And I, you know, was trying to process how I felt, but I felt that the only way I was seeing it processed or the only way it felt appropriate to process was online and to sort of, live tweet this grief and you know prove to people that it was upsetting um to me as a black person who has consistently written about race and racism but even if I hadn't been a black person that writes about race or racism lives it like you know this isn't black people's by any mean entry point to this conversation you know it, it can go from low level microaggressions to somebody saying that you speak eloquently for a you know um black person all the way up to as we see state sanctioned murder so for me it was just um I wrote it you know literally for myself I I that's why it's so long because no one would have let me have that word count um it was you know literally just a way of trying to articulate how I felt and why I felt that and why I wasn't really connecting to the initial response which felt like a lot of people were being I don't know what the what like I guess a lot of people were being judged quite harshly for not having an immediate take but I don't yeah. personally think you can hot take black death and hot take police brutality I think it it's such it was such an interesting piece and I feel from my point of view anyway as an Irish white person why I connected with it was that it kind of hit on what was happening in the reaction here. So there was a huge amount of people who, you know, didn't really know what to do first and then all of a sudden started to do an awful lot. Mm. And a lot of it comes from guilt Mm. um, and a lot of it comes from not understanding exactly what is going on. And I think a lot of the black community here in Ireland have spoken, like you said, about microaggressions and it's definitely more so subtle racism here than the police brutality that we see in the states but for a couple of days there it seemed like the actual message was being infiltrated by something else which was this rush to say I agree with this I support it when realistically and I can only speak for myself but I don't think that a huge amount of my country anyway have any understanding about this deep rooted you know racism that exists in Ireland in the UK across the entire world and it's silly to think that we can understand it by seeing this one incident. In terms of the UK what have I know that there's been protests there in the last couple of weeks and stuff like that like you said this was the latest in a long in a long line of things that have been happening recently. Um, what is the feeling there at the moment in terms of the marches and the protests? And does it feel like there's a change? Because in Ireland, it definitely feels like this is bigger than what has happened before. Mm. And yeah, I think, um, gosh, just to speak again to your point, the point you made earlier as well, just about, you know, the rush. I think 100% you're correct. So much of it is fueled by guilt rather yeah. than 
a genuine engagement with the issues and I think that's where the problem lies because guilt can only take you so far which is why I think we have this cyclical approach to police brutality to instances of racism because you know it's not like the Black Lives Matter hashtag started this year with this horrendous incident you know it is the hashtag has existed since 2013 incidents of police brutality and racism have existed for essentially all our lifetimes way before centuries um so so again that's why it can be quite like it could be quite stressful to kind of watch people um you know scrambling to prove an understanding of something that as you said they haven't they clearly haven't necessarily grasped because and that that for many people that i've spoken to puts us in a position where we fear um, when will it go back to business as usual? Because if people are just, you know, rushing to prove that they're not like other white complicit people, and when we put, um, so, when we when we define silence by not by social media posts rather than actual engagement with the issues, then you know when this rush of understanding blows over, we're back to square one. So I feel like I agree with you that in the UK probably in the same way it is in Ireland, it definitely does feel bigger. But I think, again, for many Black people, there is a sense of hope, but restrained hope, as as usual, where this does feel different, but you almost, it's almost like, dare I dream? Like, that's, I think, for me, I don't know, I can't speak genuinely to the white community in the UK. I think, you know, a lot of white people are like, yeah, you know, this definitely feels different, but then how well-versed are certain people in saying how different it feels if they haven't necessarily engaged with the conversation before but I definitely say within the black community it definitely feels I feel like I have a lot of friends that are sort of like yeah this feels different this definitely feels like there is a true kind of we're not sure how large the change is and what scale it's at yet but it definitely does feel like there are there is some there's some ground being made but I again as I said it does feel like it's it's a very restrained hope I wrote a piece like it's I don't think it's out yet but I was um sort of reflecting on some stuff for the Guardian and I was saying that it's kind of like work, walking a tightrope at the moment between like yeah. optimism and cynicism because you want to be hopeful and you want to really kind of you know throw your hat in the ring and say this feels different you know this this is it but then ha- there having been so many instances of of course police brutality of course state sanctioned murder murder but so much institutional racism that you almost you almost don't dare believe that things will actually change but I guess I'm an optimist at heart so I definitely would be lying if I said things did not feel very different this time in terms of just the level of people connecting when you're you know, online and, you know, because obviously you're a writer and a journalist, so that's where, you know, a lot of the work lives and where you have to be. Do you um, allow the the things that you see to affect you that, like, I mean, are obviously people who think that some people are being too sensitive and not understanding, racists basically, who are using platforms and who are, could be hiding behind a bot and being a troll and, and stuff like that, when you see a huge amount of support but also, you know, you see those horrific things that people are saying. Um, do you block all that out? D- does it, do you find ever that you want to engage with it to, to try and teach people? Or like that, I think a lot of white people feel that it's an expectation for black people to teach them about this. And it's, it's not. I mean, it, but in, t- in terms of that and in terms of being somebody who's writing about it online and, you know, getting attention for it, um, is that a hard thing to, to block out the amount of hatred that is still there? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Um, so I have probably been writing on the Internet um, and specifically about race and racism for 
nearly a decade it's got to be at least eight years and I used to when I was younger I think just in the same way when you're younger you can kind of stay out a bit later and like your knees don't click when you dance it's the same way that like as I was younger I had so much energy to go back to back with people whose minds I knew I wouldn't change but I had the energy I felt it was my calling I truly believed it was something I had to do I almost felt bad if I didn't if a racist just like wandered into my mentions and said this is what I think and this is why I felt obliged to respond and engage um as the years have gone on I mean I've written pieces that have got absolutely nothing to do with race bar the fact that I'm a black woman and I've still received racist like commentary um I remember the Guardian did a study into looking at um writers and trying to work out who received what abuse and it was you know the black the few like black female writers that were there received disproportionate amounts of abuse to the point where for years like where most places I write if they have an active comment section I'm just like just just close them there's it's not going to be any meaningful debate because my name and my byline has already kind of decided for several people what they're going to think of this piece so I guess when it comes to because I write so much about race um I decided a long time ago that um as you kind of spoke to that this this isn't my job like it's it's my job to you know I'm I'm, I'm a journalist who writes opinion pieces polemics so it's my job to put my opinion out there it's not part of a contractual obligation that I must engage especially when that engagement is so false and futile you're not there's so I do believe that people can change but and of course um they can otherwise what would be the point of what's going on now and what we're trying to achieve but what I've realized it's not my job single-handedly to change people's opinions and if my words haven't done enough in the column then there's nothing I'm going to say outside of that column that is going to change anything most of the time people just want to spew vitriol and get a reaction so in terms of like social media and this is what I was trying to speak to in my piece I really do believe that black people as an as the as of the group affected like I feel and not, not we're not it's not only black people that experience racism non-black minorities of course experience racism too but I'm talking specifically in this sort of instance where we're talking about anti-blackness and anti-black racism I don't I feel that trying to navigate it is a feat in itself and so we've got the navigation of it as black people having to re-traumatize ourselves through these images of black death of state-sanctioned murder then having to process that online through posting a black square or writing about how you feel in a post then having to process that as a journalist and write that into a piece then having to engage with the commentary that then comes separately from comment sections whilst navigating a pandemic I have just pretty much not engaged online at all um, I've, I've slipped up a couple times I've definitely been a bit more active on social media than I'd like to have been especially when the piece went out I wanted to like reply to everybody and like thank yeah. you for the lovely comments but as soon as that period kind of passed over I tried to disengage because I know like many people I'm doing what I can offline like I you know again I don't feel it's something I should have to you know write a big post about or whatever but I mean I I've, I've been frequently donating to charities that you know deal with racism in its all its forms for years I, I it's, it's not new to me but I know that you know trying to re-engage with those charities trying to re-engage with those platforms continue donating doing what I can um writing about it and stuff this these are things that I know I'm doing whether I'm posting about it or not so I'm trying to take the pressure off of myself 
for my mental health, really, because I don't think we understand how much these online re-traumatizations and constant kind of need to process and unpack online. I don't think we realize how much it affects us alongside everything else. I have to say, one of the things that has really kind of impacted me is that I received your book, Slay in Your Lane, um, probably two years ago now at this point. Just a nice little shot there. Yay. Yeah, so I, I read it at the time and um, I have to say I've gone back in the last week and I've read back over some chapters and I think that for any like white people who, who are watching this or who are listening to this, the words mean something different to me now having seriously tried to understand mm. racism and to really try to put myself into the shoes of Uh, a young black woman who's going to university for the first time or going into the work environment or things like this. And I mean, I think that that is something like, you know, there's been a lot of, we've been covering it on site, just, you know, podcasts that you can listen to and books that you can read who can kind of help you understand that. But I mean, your book, you know, the the thing it says, it's the black girl Bible, but it, it really does kind of shine a light on what all experiences are like because this is the thing as well about this movement you know obviously it's it's the violence and it's the hurt and it's the danger that we need to see but there are beautiful experiences as well that are obviously not getting you know any coverage at the moment and I think that your book if anybody wants to go and and read it it really does give more of a glimpse into you know growing up as a black woman in the UK in general and I mean mm-hmm. I suppose when you were writing that book did you want it to be that you know about understanding it but also how to navigate through these situations so that you can get through it yes and thank you so much that's exactly what we were hoping because I think this is one of the things um you know it was Toni Morrison that said that you know racism serves as a distraction and and I think that that quote just always sticks with me because it's just it distracts from so many things and and detracts from so many things as well and I think in terms of when we were putting together Slaying Your Lane me and my best friend Elizabeth like we felt and feel that the black female and yeah specifically British experience is so rarely delved into portrayed it's completely erased and invisibilized but also when it is portrayed and when it is understood try to be understood or unpacked it's so it's so one-dimensional and you know we try to have some instances of like joy in there we try to have some instances of like you know like looking at the fact that what despite it all black women still manage to not even just achieve but overachieve despite it all we still manage to completely you know like you know still our eyes essentially and I feel that yeah it's been it's one of those things where that we talk a lot about like I've always said that I'm a very big um, advocate for diversity within diversity you know when we were trying to compile the interviewees we wanted to talk about the fact that there is so there are so many ways to be a successful black woman in the same way that like you know when you see um when we think of like white success whatever that can mean anything from like a scientist a footballer um, you know, a, a, a taxi driver that's just super happy with his family and content and, like, has this great life, uh, a florist who's, like, you know, doing amazing and, you know, whatever. I think with Black people and Black women specifically, it's very much, okay, success, how is that represented? Black female musicians, um, which, again, no, nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Um, sports people, again, ec- an excellent, like, profession, but 
there it's so limited and then we look at our parents and obviously because our parents want us to secure the most financially viable futures possible it's very much you have to be a lawyer you have to be a doctor you have to be an engineer that's it our understanding of what black success and black female success even more so is so limited and so muted by um racism and societal expectation so for us i think it was so important that we just spoke to that diversity within diversity, interviewed women that whose experiences were very different, grew up in different places, different areas, had different understandings of, you know, because, yeah, had different understandings of what success looked like, of what hardship looked like. But at the end of the day, we're all Black women growing up in Britain who had experienced, you know, the same thing in different ways. And I think, um, yeah, that's what's been, I think even just now when we look at like, you know, Michaela Cole's show, um, I May Destroy You, that's just recently been airing. And for me, it's just been just incredible to see a depiction of black womanhood that is so, that I know very well, but your average person most certainly does not. And that's what Michaela Cole did amazingly with chewing gum. But then, yeah, like aside from that, especially black British, yeah, black British female like um, experiences aren't they are just so, they are very rarely portrayed in a multi way. Um, So that's definitely what we were trying to do with the book in making sure that we spoke to as many different types of black women as possible. I suppose before I let you go, I I just want to ask you, you know, in terms of people who are listening to this and, you know, we're we're talking about a movement that is not going to be resolved tomorrow. um, But I think that, you know, from an Irish point of view, from what we're dealing with here, we've been having marches and protests and we're talking about the subtle racism that exists in our community and microaggressions as well as more serious stuff too. Mm. But what what would you say to people, you know, who in the past have potentially gone, because for an Irish nation, we do a lot of, ah, sure, it's just a bit of crack, you know, like it doesn't mean anything. And we genuinely do use that I think to excuse a lot of behaviors that are completely unacceptable but for people who are really trying to understand the depth of that hurt that it can have on people what what would you say to maybe just trying to readjust their their thought process in that I think it's understanding that what I think one of the things that um, I've come across which I think was just such a useful way of understanding stuff is just that like having a privilege doesn't necessarily mean you are privileged I think a lot of people when you sort of say when you try to engage with white people about the concept of white privilege immediately the defense mechanism like goes up of well I'm not privileged I'm from a working class background I've worked for everything I have or well in fact I'm like you know you can be a white person with a disability and and be working class and still have white privilege not even can you will have white privilege in the same way that I as a black woman have heterosexual privilege I have um I'm able-bodied these are all forms of privilege that you don't get to opt out of because you don't feel like a privileged person because if there are certain instances of injustice that you don't experience because you are white that is a form of privilege. And I think that starting point is crucial because what I've started to realise is that I'm, I'm part of why I stopped engaging in terms of my online inverted commas debates is because our starting points are completely different. I'm arguing with people about who aren't even engaged. Like, how do I begin to explain to somebody um, what a microaggression is when, you know, in their mind, their whiteness doesn't, give them access to anything in any different way than than my blackness like stops me from access to certain things it doesn't it it, it, the starting points are completely different and I think um 
even excuses in terms of things like you know this is a bit of crack this is a bit of banter like things like oh you know this is low level this is this is different this is whatever I once you start to understand what the conversation of white privilege pertains in terms of saying that this isn't a conversation to say that you are a privileged person this is saying that there are certain things you will never experience because of the fact that you're white that then I personally think I've seen a lot of things click for people once they start to work from that point because I think for so many there is a real barrier to understanding where the different lies and and I think that's why with our book we we had so much data because we were like we we aren't gonna sit here and say this is my experience these are my anecdotes because people will just gaslight you and say well actually I experienced something similar and actually and you'll say yeah but that's not because of your race but it's still you know hard facts data things that show the likelihood of you know black people experiencing x versus y in this country in wherever I think the hard facts um, are definitely like a really, really good thing to look into and also under, trying to understand exactly what white privilege um, and anti-blackness as concepts are. Absolutely. And uh, finally, before I let you go, the um, the new book then, it's still written by yourself and your best friend, Elizabeth. So Loud Black Girls is what it's called. Um, and 20 black women writers ask, what next? Such mm-hmm. kind of a, such a perfect title in some ways because you know I think that that's a really important and crucial point as well to to talk about what's next and to continue to keep this going like I know from our site's point of view we need to incredibly diversify and it's something that I'm committed to doing but I suppose you know um well here you tell us about it me me shiting on about it just fangirling here why don't you tell us about what people and fans of yours can expect from Loud Black Girls Sure. So yeah, thank you for picking up on the title because that was literally like, you know, sort of a play on words of the idea or play on the idea rather that like, you know, black women are always stereotyped as being very loud and which is ironic considering that like we are so often invisibilized and erased. So we were kind of trying to flip the stereotype of loudness on its head and about like black women using their voices and being amplified. And um, I think it just honestly like could not have come a a better time in terms of asking that question, what's next? Because as we said, our entry point to racism has never been police brutality. It's something that you are raised pretty much even if it's unbeknownst to you, understanding. So we've always been asking what's next. We've always been trying to look towards the future. I know that that's something that a lot of people are belatedly coming to, but as a community, we've been trying to like look to what what our next steps are with each kind of racial progression we make. Like what what are we aiming for next kind of thing so what we you know we've spoke I guess slaying your name was a bit more about looking at the past and looking at the present whereas loud black girls um we've sort of spoken to the next generation of like young black British writers some of them established some of them merging and we really just asked them you know what is it about their experiences living as black women today but also I guess a sort of a mediation of the future in a well when we sort of first pitched it was you know looking at a post-Brexit um, hopefully post-Trump world but now it's kind of like a post-pandemic post like you know racial not necessarily post but you like you during a revolution like race revolution like so it's really just kind of looking at the next steps and yeah I'm just it's just blown me away in terms of timing because I feel like the question of what's next is more on everyone's lips than ever before. Absolutely well I am so excited and it's when is it being released? Gosh I should know the exact date but I know it's coming out in October was it September? Gosh, I'll have to double check. <laughs> I think it's October, but it's one, it's either September, October. It got moved because of um coronavirus, unfortunately. But um, yeah, 
yeah, it will be out in autumn, essentially. And um, and finally, Yomi, can I just ask, you know, I, I loved um, the introduction that Elizabeth wrote, actually, in, in Slay in Your Lane. She said that that book was about exasperation and, and optimism. Yeah. And that's kind of why you guys came together to put that together. Are you optimistic about, you know, what's going to be coming down the line for journalists and writers within the black community and amplifying all the voices? Because I know from a white journalist point of view, I'm excited to hopefully hear more and to continue to try my best to understand. But for you who, you know, can sometimes I'm sure feel exhausted and feel jaded by it all, is there optimism there that, you know, this will hopefully be a turning point? Um, yeah, absolutely. I think I'm a very optimistic person by nature. And I think, look, like even before, um, you know, the last few weeks, I feel that, you know, there have been amazing publications like, you know, Galdem that have really been so crucial to supporting, you know, not just black, black and minority um, talent and really, you know, the amount of amazing journalists that have come out of Galdem that have then, you know, sort of um, that are still writing for Gaudem, but also writing for other publications. Um, I feel like in terms of the publishing industry, there have been lots of um, books by Black authors that have done sort of very well. Um, I think there are just, like, you know, there are amazing platforms like um, Black Ballad, which is a magazine um, aimed at um, Black British women, um, but with, has like sort of global conversations. And I think, yeah, like, I think I've, I'm always optimistic because even though I don't necessarily think the world is going to change overnight, um, it's always changing. And even if, and sometimes, you know, that change doesn't always come because of, you know, um, I guess white society deciding to, you know, give up power. Someone said something about the drowning, I guess, of the Edward Colston statue in yeah. Bristol. And someone sort of, you know, the fact that the ramifications from that weren't necessarily people getting in trouble but rather you know a, a move to rename Colston Hall you know and, and a racist pub having its like racist signage taking that taken down someone said something like a lot can happen when people don't start asking for things nicely and I don't think that always means like protest like protests I think are absolutely crucial but I think generally we as a community are in a position where we aren't really asking, we're pretty much demanding. And I think that always leads, um, to be honest, we always have been, we've always been trying to do that. But I think we are at a bit of a tipping point where it feels like those demands are finally in some way being heard. So even if, like, you know, it doesn't all change overnight, I'm certainly optimistic. And I definitely think, you know, even if the establishment decides tomorrow they don't want to print that many more minority voices, I feel like we are creating our own platforms and our own ways of making sure we're heard. Amazing. Yummy, yeah, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed that. Thank you.